Hello, and welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the book club podcast that will always be on the side of the Inklings. Justice for Inklings, <laughs> all over, of all kinds. Misunderstood creatures, mistreated, misaligned. I feel like the Inklings deserve more more of a, I don't know, respect, I guess? I guess they get respect. More kindness. Inklings deserve more kindness. Joining me today is co-host Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. Amanda, do you feel like the Inklings are unjustly served? I think so. I mean, it reminds me of the crocodiles in the New York sewers. It's not yeah, their or, fault. Yeah, or like <laughs> mega rats. I mean, we created yeah. the conditions for them to thrive, you know? Exactly. We should. The least we could do is kind of get out of their way, maybe support them. Maybe build them their own little support network under there. I guess they're just thriving on our garbage and on our sewer. Yeah. Right. If you have no idea what we're talking about, that is a sign of things to come because today we're doing a book club episode. This is part one. Uh, we do book clubs in two parts. And this is going to be part one of a book club covering the novel Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World, which is a Haruki Murakami surreal novel and that's what we're going to be discussing today the inklings reference is from that book so if you've read the first half of the book you'll know what i was talking about if you haven't we are going to be spoiling the first half of the book book clubs are analytical deep dives so be forewarned now obviously you can join us for the conversation if you don't care about spoilers or if you're just curious but we will be covering the first half of that story as i mentioned it is a surreal novel uh, of two different narratives that so far are not directly connected, but I mean, they're dropping some hints and there's some stuff going on to, I don't know, to indicate that these things are related, but it's kind of hard to describe them because the narratives are so different. Anyway, that's kind of the premise of it. Today we'll be covering the first half of that, which in our soft cover editions is pages 1 through 198, but the easier thing for anybody out there, it's chapters 1 through 19. So if you don't have page numbers in your book or in your copy, we'll be covering chapters 1 through 19. I gave Amanda the prompt, and she chose this book, and I'm going to have her talk us through why she picked it, but the prompt was to pick a book by an author that you are embarrassed you've never read before, so presumably an author that's well-known or well-regarded. Amanda, why did you pick this book? Um, I chose this book because I've heard of uh, Murakami before, especially in our friend friend group um where mm -hmm. a lot of our friends actually our mutual friends read a lot of like sci-fi and stuff like that and i have only just recently delved into that genre yeah and yeah. um from what i had heard of murakami it seems like he's um a really interesting read who and he incorporates some really interesting aspects and some ideas and um is really good with like symbolism and stuff like that so i was like man that sounds right up my alley i can't believe i've never read anything by him <laughs> so, probably the I, most famous contemporary japanese author in english like pr he's yeah. probably the most translated and well-known japanese author for i guess i should just say for americans i'm not sure if he's big in britain or anything um i know right. there are other there are some authors of japanese descent who are also really well regarded but I, he writes in japanese and gets translated out of that for the english reader so yeah i think in that regard his reputation is pretty you know, it's pretty lofty. Yeah. He also, I know, is respected because, though he does write, yeah, you could call this novel science fiction, for example. I think that'd be pretty fair to say. But it's often regarded as kind of outside of the genre trappings. It's a bit more surreal. He doesn't, mm -hmm. I don't know if he gets stuck with that tag. He's considered, I think, just kind of capital L literary. I don't know if you felt that way reading this book so far. I think so. There's a lot of, um, like I said before, it, the thing that really um, drew me to him was the the fact that a lot of people were talking about um, the artistic style that he brings to the literature, which is why I think uh, even though he's considered kind of sci-fi, it's even if you're not into sci-fi, you can enjoy his novels. Um, so right, I think right. so far, like with some of the symbolic meaning and some of the, the characterization and the setting description and stuff like that, he's, he's off obviously got like a mastery of, um, those particular elements of literature and also plot. So it's, it's really interesting to read so far. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's begin then. Let's start the book club part one. I think we've covered what we're going to be discussing today pretty well. So let's jump in. Part one, we're going to do our first segment of the day is going to be a fill in the blank segment. This is a classic for us. It's kind of just a lighthearted way to get things started and get a conversation going. I made the fill in the blank this week, so I'll throw it to you first. 
instead of being a, a Calcutech or Semiotech, if you worked for either the system or the foundry, which are the two shadow organizations kind of at war, what do you think your job would be? So I obviously don't think that I would do well with the research or the headhunting or even, you know, the goon aspect of those. Yeah, not looking <laughs> to tear up just... a fridge and throw beer bottles yeah. or, or whiskey <laughs> bottles around. Yeah, not not really my, my jam there. Um, but I think that I could be the receptionist, um, even though the main character kind of looks down his nose at the person that he calls for the jobs and stuff. Um that kind of stuff is something that I have done before, and I feel like I could actually do that part. <laughs> it doesn't seem like, yeah, I guess when you're engaged, like the system, it's sort of, it seems like either a, it's like a shadow organization that props up the government. I don't think it's like the elected form of the government in Japan, right. if there even is one left at the time. The novel's kind of light on those details, but it just seems like they're both so high risk. They're they're doing such, it's like CIA type stuff where, you know, you're trading in secrets, you're tra doing things that are illegal or very dangerous, that there's potential violence and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I don't think I'm well suited. And frankly, I made this fill in the blank and then I looked at it later and thought like, eh, I don't even know if that's a great question because we don't see many other jobs. And we do learn that he is the only Calcutech even left alive. <laughs> so it's not like right. that's an easy job you can just slide into anyway. It says at some point, I think they said like, your odds are one in a million or something of, of your brain surviving the the process. I would just put down that the guys who came in to clean up from the system, I don't think they're semiotechs technically. Maybe they were. They're like researchers. I think I could be a cleanup, cleanup guy. You know, they came in when he was attacked just to check on him. They looked around to see what they did. They interviewed him, you know, made some veiled threats and got out of there. I think, yeah, <laughs> give me a, it's like a crime scene investigator. Yeah, I don't want to be there NCIS when the crime stuff. happens. I don't want to be there when the crime occurs. I want to be there when it's very clear that the crime is over and, you know, we're just trying to gather information. Mm -hmm. I feel like I could, you know, maybe slide into that kind of a role. <laughs> I can see you doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I do wonder, in regards to the book, I wonder what other positions we will even encounter. Because so much of it is... So much of the structure of both of them is really unexplained, which I guess just lends to their kind of mysterious nature in the story. What right, do you think? I think it's meant to be a bit murky since uh, it's highly departmentalized, right, for the secrecy aspect. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we only learn about the other Calcutex being dead from the grandfather's granddaughter. See, I should have a better... The granddaughter. The researcher's yeah, the granddaughter. granddaughter. And so yeah. we don't even know. If, I guess that information could be incorrect, but according yeah. to her, that that's what it is. What do you? I call her in my mind. I call her the Pink Lady because she's always in pink. Yeah, I think Pink Lady. That's I, isn't that an organization of women who are generally a little older, maybe like retirees that kind of do oh. social events together. I feel like I've heard of the the Pink Ladies before. That's well. Is that a ref? Maybe isn't it that might be a, a, it? Might be a Wisconsin Greece? thing. Isn't that from well, Greece? Well, it might be a Wisconsin thing now okay. that I think about it. Oh. No, I think this is a legitimate social group, it, like a volunteer, maybe not a volunteerism group, but it's like a, yeah, they like plan events and they go out and do things together. It's kind of like a social club, a friends club. This oh. could be entirely made up, but I think, yeah, I think that's a great way to remember her. She does. Yeah, she's got pink everything. Yeah, and I know for sure that Greece had the... The Pink Ladies, that was their gang name. That must have been, yeah, I don't know why I'm remembering this. I think my step-grandma was a Pink Lady, but no, that I bet 100% you're right. That must be an allusion to that. No Grease yeah. references in this story that I can tell so far. I mean, I want Other you... references everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the allusions are, allusions are maybe a little too fast and furious so far. Um, <laughs> go ahead and throw us to the next segment. What are, what are we doing next? Sure. The next segment is called Surprises, Pleasant or Otherwise, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. But yeah. um, so something that we are legitimately surprised about when when we encounter it in the story. And it could be something that's a really good surprise that we enjoyed, or it could be a negative surprise that we were just kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah, put so, off by. Um, yeah. So what was yours? I had one for each, so let me do... I'll do Pleasant first, because I know you have a similar one down. Because the allusions in the story, and maybe this is where Murakami gets his literary reputation, but because the allusions to both books and movies and authors are so fast and furious, you might miss some if you're not paying super close attention. But he mentioned Turgenev, who, in, when we were doing the Penguin Little Black Classics reviews that we went on, those 80 works that we reviewed, 
the, Turgenev was one of the Russian authors I think we both enjoyed and kind of liked the prose, yeah. liked the style. And on page 163, he also disses some of the ones that we, I think like Dostoevsky and stuff. Let me pull this quote And quick. Tolstoy, yeah. And Tolstoy. So some of the Russian <laughs> authors that we also did not love, the the narrator, to be clear, it's not Murakami himself, it's the main character, he does not like them. Um he says, I, I have a thing about losers, which is why he likes Turgenev. Flaws in oneself open you up to others with flaws. Not that Dostoevsky's characters didn't generate pathos, but they're flawed in ways that don't come across as faults. And while I'm on the subject, Tolstoy's characters' faults are so epic and out of scale, they're as static as backdrops. I think that, yeah, the, the characters being static, I think in both of those characters' works, reads true to me and how we reviewed them. It was just too... And I, he descri- describes them as being too epic, Maybe epic and out of proportion is true. I also think too explicit was part of it. That was what we bumped up against. It was just so so preachy and didactic that it just felt like, you know, you were being sermoned to, <laughs> delivered to. Yeah, that's to. exactly when I read the description as well, because I was surprised when I saw the Turgenev, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can totally relate to this narrator. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the descriptions yeah. of the explanations for why Turgenev um, was superior to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, I was like, yep, 100% agree. I was like, it's like, it's like we read this chapter and then did our podcast almost <laughs> i know that was funny do you, do you find that description the narrator's description of those stories to fit his own narrative is that how you feel about this character yeah i think so when he talked about um tolstoy and dostoevsky's um characters one being flat and the other being overly done um i think that i like I like Murakami's character development um, with the narrator and with the pink lady, I think is really interesting, but the librarian, Mm -hmm. no, I thought that that was more of like a Dostoevsky kind of like flat character. Yeah. A total side character that is quite literally tossed, tossed off. Like I think she, I don't even remember how or why she left. I remember they had like a awkward non sex, sex encounter or something. And he was, yeah. and then did she just like get up and leave after reading the books? They like looked at the unicorns and then she left. I don't even, yeah. I don't even remember how she exited the narrative. I mean, it was a very like much a side morning, counter. the next morning she was like, okay, call me if you want or don't. Right. Okay, yeah. bye. <laughs> maybe she'll swing back in. Maybe she won't. Do you find yeah. that, do you think he, this narrative is setting up to be where he's just a victim of circumstances beyond his control? Do you think that's describing the story pretty well? I think that's how he feels for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that he. I mean, the fact that he's doing work that he doesn't even really understand that well is hinting yeah. that he's <laughs> caught up in mechanisms that are grander than him, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, how about for you? Did you have any other surprises? I know we shared the Russian one. Yeah, um, I also said um, on page eight um, when Murakami's narrator started, and nobody's named, by the way, um, when Murakami's narrator begins um, discussing why he felt attracted to some chubby women, but not others. I was so Uh like caught off guard because I was just like, where is this coming from? But even though I, I, I was like, man, this is like random. I actually was like, I found this to actually be kind of a pleasant surprise because it's an insight into the character, especially like later when um, it kind of like ties into the librarian and stuff like that. But I just, I actually laughed out loud because I was like, this is so like random, but funny and, and insightful at the same time. So I found myself enjoying it. um, Even though I was like, man, this is random. (laughs) Well, I think, and Murakami is known for not, I mean, well, uh, frankly, it's as if we're dancing around talking about like young adult, what makes some young adult and adult literature different. But like many literary figures, especially the last hundred or so years, he he talks about sex frequently and writes his almost all of his characters have like explicit desire that they dive into. Sometimes it is the essential part of the plot. In this story, it definitely has not been. But at, at every turn he's taken the opportunity to kind of describe the main character's sexual preferences, the psychology behind it, the things he prefers and doesn't get into some of his history. And so, yeah, it's, it's a topic that he finds himself discussing pretty often. I don't know if it's led me to, I don't think it's deeply provided anything for me in the narrative so far. I don't know if it's been an element of the story that has, 
I guess it's more of a distraction so far to me than it is some kind of like deep character insight or revelation. It shows that the main character has kind of a particular preferences he's got, and that's his loner streak. He lives alone. He's got, it seems like he has a pretty mechanized life that he likes how it clicks together, you know? And so I guess so with women, he, right? He has these really extreme preferences and thinks about the things he wants or doesn't want. But I don't, did you find that part of his development to be essential in some way? I guess it's, I mean, it's there. Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily essential, except I think that it does give us insight into uh, the character and the way that yeah. he thinks, right? The whole discussion about like why he's attracted to some and why he's not attracted to others. It shows that he is analytical and that he's that he does want to have a better understanding of himself, which I think is yeah. pretty telling, too. For sure. For yeah. sure. And yeah, he... He responds really strongly to sense. That's part of that scene, yeah. too, is that he, he reacts and tries to compliment her, maybe in a flirting way, and then can't. And it does, I mean, in a plot sense, it, it leads into, because they're now, it seems like they're going to be together, these two characters, in the, in the literal way, not in the romantic way, but they're going to be stuck together trying to unravel this mystery. And so that certainly comes back. His initial feelings toward the, the pink lady, the granddaughter, have come back around and everything. So I think it could contribute yeah. going forward. But yeah, it was there. It is explicit text. I'm not really sure what to do with it yet. Maybe we'll see how things develop in the back half. But yeah, that that I made note of that too, for sure. Yeah. I've got one more surprise. It is unpleasant in my mind. Though... It's only unpleasant because I have completely stopped reading. This is an episode where we I actually did split my reading. So I'm as I'm discussing this as we're having this conversation, I have only finished exactly halfway. I am stunned that there has not been more explicit connections between the two narratives yet. I mean, they're cl- it's clearly building. There's the skull. We could just start rifling off things, right? There's the skulls. They call it the end of the world, which is his passcode to get into his subconscious mind or whatever that is. There are mm-hmm. some symbolic and thematic ones. It's clearly they're both about memory. They're both trying to connect to like consciousness and what what do you know versus what do you know? What is unknown in your mind versus what is known to you? They both right. deal with like work and systems. They're both like... They're, they both have clear organizations that are quite powerful, though no one quite knows why or how. You know, it's like the town is this well-run thing that has all these traditions, but nobody knows why. It's just, oh, this is how we do it. We do it this way. Anyway, there's so we could just rifle off things like that. I think there's a lot of connections, but I was just waiting for anything direct. A name, some kind of reference to a previous life, or some kind of reference yeah. in the end of the world narrative to a person or an event that, and and maybe I just missed something, but I was surprised by that. Do you feel like the two parallel narratives are, I don't know, are they holding your attention? Do, do you see connections between them yet that are interesting? I, I'm actually very interested in it and I don't, and I'm not um, in a rush for the, the two to be, mm-hmm. um, to be, I guess, interconnected yet. Um, yeah. I'm, I actually expect it to continue to be like separate um, until probably close to the end of the novel. That makes is sense. what I'm predicting. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't bother me, and I and I actually enjoy. I, I think the reason I enjoy it is because I I like looking for those little connections to be like, oh, that connects to this world in this way, and this can like I like looking for those little hints and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I, that might just be me. <laughs> well, it does, and I think it, it's one thing if it just felt puzzle boxy or kind of like Easter egg e. If that's a that's an mm-hmm. adjective we're using now, <laughs> but yeah, if it was, but I think the thematic things between them are becoming clear enough to where there's just enough conflict and development in both sides to think these have clear idea connections that I guess it is impressive that halfway through, I feel like it's still very tangled up and I'm not quite Mm -hmm. sure which threads to pick at yet or which ones will be the most fruitful. And I guess it's also a compliment to it. This, I guess, would be the more pleasant surprise of this this part of the story i like them both like i don't dread when when you know because it's alternating chapters i don't dread when the other chapter comes up i'm more curious to think like oh yeah we should get back to that what was going on there was there was this happening or this development so i guess the fact that they are both holding my interest is a compliment i'm not sure if again Mm -hmm. do you feel you're yearning for one more than the other or that you're more i don't know the pace of one is better or something no but i do like and and this, I guess, goes into uh, the the please continue make it stop segment, but I, I like that they're two different pacing 
like two different uh, speeds and two different settings and two different very, it's almost like reading two novels at the same time. I really actually enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would agree the hard boiled or the hard boiled, the end of the world is in the title. <laughs> I was just flipping the title, the end of the world narrative <laughs> at the, at that location it does. I mean, it's very dreamlike for obvious reasons, and it's very surreal. And because it's all you know, proper nouns with archetypal names, or you know, it's like there's the wall. This is the town, and it's got that simplification mm-hmm. to it, and so that timeless quality to it. Uh, I think that one, that one, I think took me longer to get into. But yeah, we can let's just jump right into. Please continue. Make it stop. This is our third segment, which also self-explanatory but we're going to each pick one thing that we want to keep going one thing we've enjoyed in the prose or in the storytelling or anything and then we're also going to pick one thing that we wish would stop that is not working for us and we're not enjoying yeah i wrote for my please continue i i think it could be the end of the world segment because it was less jardin laden and it hasn't required like sometime early on in the other narrative in the real life narrative the tokyo i guess we can call that one the tokyo narrative there is mm-hmm. that moment like a lot of sci-fi books require, I guess it's when he's like near with the grandfather of the researcher, where there is that like three-page download of just, here's what a Calcutech is, here's how I do my job, here's what a Semiotech is, this is the conflict that's been going on between us. And there's a lot of unexplored there and unexplained, but you do get that download of just, okay, here's the background, that entire opening that was really baffling with the elevator and the no sound, all that stuff gets explained away, right? It even explains how he somehow goes into a waterfall, but in the middle of Tokyo, like they explain that. And so it just, there is that moment of clarity where you're like, okay, I'm finally caught up. You know, that part he didn't tease out much longer. But to get back right. to the continue, I think the end of the world narrative has had a more consistent pacing to it. And I think it could be because it doesn't have those bigger sci-fi-ish explainers to it that I think... I've just been enjoying that one too. And I'd like that narrative space to keep going. I feel like it's had, it's been more consistent, I guess is what I would say. It's been mm-hmm. felt more even keel. Like the things that have been happening have been more spaced out maybe. And not as mm-hmm. there wasn't as much outright mystery at the beginning. And so, because it was clearly not in our world. I also yeah. will say one more thing for please continue. I, now that the, character there that main character is getting into dream reading i found some of those descriptions to be really beautiful and kind of moving and and it does you know add to the mystery because you do wonder what world they live in like whose memories are they where could they be coming from there's a line on 184 that i pulled that reads of one of the dreams grass is moving in the breeze white clouds traveling across the sky sunlight reflecting on a stream pure unpretentious visions in my mind however these simple scenes summon forth a sadness that i can find no words for like a ship sailing past a window they appear only to disappear without a trace and that simile i think is indicative of a lot of his writing where it is compact and it conveys a lot with a little sort of it and it sort of mm-hmm. is a has a sadness and a sorrow to it with a even just a brief description like that and it's sort of like this longing image the sort of almost I don't know. It's got this adventurous quality, but in a sad way, you know, like you're locked out of the boat, you're locked out of the adventure or something. And I feel like that's how the dream reading is feeling where it's, you're detached enough to have it be confusing, but there's glimpses of things you feel like you should understand. At any rate, I just thought that quote was really beautiful. And I think it's, that's Murakami's writing when it's working really well, it's compact and I don't think it overstays and can convey emotions in a pretty quick way like that. Yeah. I, I loved the um his imagery in the end of the world chapters because and this is my please continue is is the dichotomy of the novel where you have the um the two worlds um because they are meant to be so different so you have that beautiful imagery the pacing is a little bit slower there's more of um the the plot is simpler there is a simpler life in yes in the end of the world stuff which is a direct contrast to what's going on in the the hard-boiled wonderland chapters where there's a lot of information to download for the readers but that i think is he could space that out and put some of that information also into um end of the world too but by merging the two worlds earlier but by keeping it all separate and by keeping all that information into um, the those chapters, the Wonderland chapters, it makes 
reading those chapters seem more hectic. It's not as peaceful. There's a lot more going on. And you can yeah, even see yeah. that in the chapter titles, right? So the the Wonderland chapter titles all have at least three things yeah, and they're, they're all materialistic things. Right, exactly. Right. Whereas in the um the end of the world stuff, it's it's something that's more of an image, a description of right. something. Um, so I, I really enjoy that. I love that it's we get to see Murakami, the artistic side of him with like some of the imagery, the descriptions in End of the World or End of the World, and then we get to see like the plot-driven um, characterization and stuff like that. The the plot-heavy aspects be in the other chapter, so it's it's really interesting for me. Yeah, and the characters in the End of the World part feel like it. Like I said, it all feels so simplistic in that archetype way it all just feels yeah. so it's presenting you something base it feels almost myth-like in p- the character's motivations and jobs and it's all presented to you as something that's so ancient or mythic that it's kind of like well you should just get this and yeah i think that then when you contrast that against the characters in the tokyo narrative i mean it's you know we have to get a paragraph about his favorite movies or tv and then it's there's he talks about his whiskey preferences and goes to the library and it does it feels messier maybe a bit more descriptive and sort of not bogged down in a negative way but it has the you know the complexity of a modern life and kind of all of those details whereas the other one is allowed to just be something more i guess it is ethereal or dreamlike if that's what it is revealed to be that would make i mean a lot of sense that that is the split though as i mentioned i i am curious and i was fiending for some kind of direct connection but i i admire the restraint that it hasn't gotten there but yeah no i think i'd like the end of the world narrative to continue with its tone and the image images it plays with and just its overall yeah that kind of like mythic quality that timeless epic quality almost Mm. feels out of time in a way anything you want to to make it stop what do you think yeah um i actually the only thing that really stood out to me that i did not care for was um the librarian scene in the wonderland chapters okay yeah um just because her character i was like what what even is the point like just for the sex scene where they don't have sex because he can't get it up. Like, I don't like, I don't understand what her purpose is. Maybe, maybe because I haven't read the entire book and, and I don't, maybe she does make an appearance later on. And to be clear, because there are two different librarians. When you say Wonderland, that's Tokyo, the Tokyo scene. Cause there is some kind of connection between the other narrator and the other librarian in the end of the world narrative. But it's not, I think as the Colonel explains, like it's, even if you have sexual feelings, she will never, you know, she's missing her shadow, whatever that symbolically means or literally means. So, like, she can't Which be attracted she to you. she doesn't have a mind. Yeah, she doesn't have, like, a mind or, what I guess, feeling, right? That she can't reciprocate right. that kind of feeling. And anyway, okay, yeah. so keep going. I just wanted to be clear. You're talking about the Tokyo one. Yeah, the Tokyo one. Um, yeah, I got gotcha. you. I, I understand that there is a purpose for the other one. But, yeah, the Tokyo one, the Wonderland librarian, it's... It made me think of like the the harem anime, right? Like where you have one dude character and then he's got like five ladies who are all yeah. in love with him and yep. yeah. And they're so very diverse it, conveniently. They're like right, each is yeah, a different each type. One is different. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so one likes like, sports, but the other one likes chess, but the, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, "Okay, um what is the point of her?" And it, so I don't know. Anyway, so I was just I wondering, found, like, yeah, no, go ahead. What what is the purpose of her? Is she just meant to like show that he's really suave with the ladies, but but like intimidated by the pink girl because she's a lot more direct in her sexuality too, or like I don't, I just. I don't know. So yeah, the librarian is presented so passively. Like she, she even I don't think she's struggling to pronounce words, but she kind of just she kind of repeats everything that he asks her. She sort of is this, yeah, just a very passive figure um, who yeah. apparently though can eat eat with the best of them. So respect to that, <laughs> respect on <laughs> yeah. that one. puts puts down a ten course meal uh, and which 
I think we can all admire. I yeah, that's my make it stop too. Is the just abrupt sex talk? All of the female characters in the story have been have been in some way presented as a sexual object for, and the pink lady in the most obvious way because, like you said, she's so direct about it. She's young and curious. She it says that like I want to you know I haven't had any sexual forays yet. I want to know what that's like, and she propositions him too. But I think mm-hmm. yeah, I, the librarian stuff. I thought the scene where they read the the library books together was not tender, but sort of, I don't know. It was kind of, it was kind of a sweet little Moby, the word I would settle on there. But yeah, when, when the pink lady's talking at 57, he, she says to him, are you well endowed? And he says, I beg your pardon. I nearly choked. She says, well, it's just that I don't know anything about my own sex drive yet. She explains. So I'd like to try lots of different things. And then, you know, he doesn't respond to that at all and just leaves and just goes down off the elevator. And so, yeah, I mean, it certainly shows her own kind of like brashness or naivete in a way to her inexperience with things being so sheltered with her grandpa. And, but I just don't know if it's going to serve anything broader, and I certainly agree with you. I don't know if the librarian sex scene, if that was removed and he just spent the night drinking his whiskey and researching the book, like, I don't know if that did anything for me. It it certainly wasn't that evocative or an interesting intimate moment. Her eating all the food was kind of a silly, I mean, it just kind of fills in this almost reputation of Murakami's characters are always quirky, and they're always kind of... They have one or two behaviors that are just, it makes them feel surreal or almost imaginary in some way. And his characters have that reputation very broadly, that they're just kind of, that they have this floating feeling of just, maybe this is real, maybe it's not. And maybe the eating scene kind of fits that, but I don't, yeah, the sex scene just didn't, I don't know, did it, I don't, I guess I'm struggling to find the words because I'm like, didn't, did it function narratively? Was it revelatory in some way? Was the writing really, did he strike upon some insight or interest or image that i'll remember it's like no to all of it yeah i and i this is perhaps the trappings of having an english degree i was trying to assign meaning to the scenes and to the character since there wasn't anything that i felt was obvious so i was like well the the amount of food that she was taking in is what turned him off right and and perhaps that is a symbol of like the materialism of the world because materialism is something i think that i see a lot in these chapters um so i'm wondering if that's like a turnoff to him he he's longing for something more simple which is why when he retires he only wants to like study greek and play cello like that's right that's his goal (laughs) <laughs> so I'm wondering if that's it. And then I was thinking too about uh, when he was talking to uh, the professor about um, sex drive and the professor was saying that if you let your, um, if you inhibit yourself sexually for too long, it actually affects your ability to think and to imagine and stuff like that. And since he has not that the failure to hook up with the librarian means that he has not released his sex drive in a while is that going to affect him later as far as like his ability to think is he making decisions now that are based on the fact that he is not thinking properly and stuff like that so that's Hmm. so i'm trying to the materialism consideration is a fantastic one i had not given that really any thought though you're right the the narrative i mean we kind of hit upon this when we were contrasting the two narratives right that one of them just feels so bogged down with real world references, real world considerations, concerns. And it's so, it feels so dense with that stuff. Again, there's paragraphs of just like, here's five movies I, the character kind of likes, and here's a bunch of authors. And it just does feel very referential and very kind of swamped by those, the minutia of that world, right. of, the, of the real world and those references. So, and yeah, his, to contrast that with sort of his retirement plans, I think he does, he does come across as just kind of a secluded and quiet man who doesn't want you know who likes the routines he has he he, you're right he mentions retirement that the great thing about his job is that it will help him retire early right right? everything else about it just seems like well i'm just gonna do this and it's a paycheck and you know it's good work um what about so the one thing we haven't talked about yet before we i do want to end with the prediction segment Mm -hmm. so we'll go there we'll go there last after we've exhausted our talk anything else we want to talk about do you have... Oh, wait, hold on. Did you have another make it stop or please continue? I didn't want to jump on it. No, that was it. Yeah, that was it. Those were the two. Yeah, and I mentioned my make it stop. The only character I think we've really missed so far then, because I feel like we've we've teased out a lot of the details that have intrigued us. What do you make of the researcher scientist and the, the grandfather character? Any, any insights on him or any strong reactions? I did like... That's one of the only characters who gets 
a touch of dialect work, just a touch of yeah. it. And I don't know if it's meant to be to an English reader, American anyway reader. Is it supposed to be kind of Scottish sounding, kind of country? I don't. What's the twang? Yeah, to me, it <laughs> sounded like he was like from the country. He's not somebody who grew up in yeah. the big city for sure. Yeah, I, I sort of like that. It it did make him a more sympathetic figure, which if he ends up being kind of a sinister you know, mastermindish type of like plan. He obviously says, I'm trying to save the world. Who knows if that ends up being the truth or not, or whatever, whoever he's working for. But yeah, it did make me kind of endeared to him and sort of made me like him more in his kind of that rogue. He's the rogue scientist just trying to do the right thing. He's, you know, he's about the work, right? He's not about the outcome or about the power. He just wants to contribute something and likes, likes learning. Yeah. I really enjoyed his character as well because he's, interested in science for science sake and he loves he's very creative too like the ideas that he came up with like he came up with the calcutech stuff like he was the main researcher for that and he's we do learn that from his granddaughter right yes okay i'm suspicious of everything that i don't think she's the type to she's you know her naivete that depiction in the story is pretty clear so i'm not saying she's lying but when she gave that huge download of him like you're the only one left the others are dead you're you're like that stuff seems so shocking that it was kind of like all right i gotta be suspicious of this anyway sorry continue um but yeah i i enjoyed I enjoyed his character because he's, you know, creative, but he's he's got his moral sense, too, where he's like, well, I don't want this to be used, like, by military in order to wage war and right. stuff like that. And, right. and uh, but I think that it's important information and I'd like it to be for good. So that's why it's so secretive. So I think that he's. I liked him for all those reasons. And then, yeah, I think that the giving him an accent too, you're just like, oh, he's so cute. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and the, the, the mob guys who show up, did you notice that he was a little accented? The kind of the, the thoughtful one, the mastermind mob guy who shows up? Um, junior. Junior. There you go. He, I believe they, <laughs> it almost seemed like Murakami was taking in some influences from crime movies or something, you know, like a Scorsese movie, or I don't know when this book was published, but I felt like he had kind of, maybe it was the slang he was using or just his sort of, you know, I'm smarter than you, I'm playing four-dimensional chess vibe, you know, his, his sort yeah, of, yeah. that he is the mastermind and he knows all the angles and sees all the moves but yeah i thought those were the only two characters who had kind of a manner of speaking that was unique i guess mm-hmm. yeah they both stood out to me for that yeah. reason any other thoughts on the scientists or any any other side characters we missed that we didn't really get to talk about i think we covered them okay all. okay none other that are none that are going to leave you the strong impression how about the uh, any from the end of the world hmm I mean, the colonel is really interesting. He's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a leader type, and the librarian we discussed very shortly. Um, but the gatekeeper seems to be pretty interesting in the end of the world, in that he's like the leader of the town. Yeah, and he doesn't know why. He's interesting because <laughs> won't yeah, say. Yeah, everybody just like blindly follows whatever he has to say, and he's like in charge of removing the shadow, and then like working the shadow it's like a labor camp yeah I don't know, for this i think he just, right? yeah, just lets them peter off you know just lets them fade away yeah yeah it's really interesting i i think his character and also he like keeps making weapons and they're like really nice weapons like knives and stuff it's just why <laughs> they and they do why? keep alluding to it though that it's something about the winter wait for the winter and i believe the colonel mentions that too just sort of well you'll see in yeah. the winter and now that i mean we're at the part yeah. where the winter has just come he had the episode in the forest when he was out for too long and you know the wall kind of loomed over him in a <laughs> almost like and is that that's not anthropomorphization when it's a wall i guess personification he was just sort of the, it would almost felt mm-hmm. like it was attacking him in a weird way or something had his episode right. um so i guess we'll learn more about the winter you know in the second half of the story here's a here's a segment that we can make up on the fly i want you to tell me if you think i'm over reading or under reading this the fact that the oh. so in the end of the world narrative the titles everyone has feel to me anyway again those archetypal things but it i can't get out of my head that the colonel is called colonel that is a specific military reference that is not out of time like that is a specific title from a time period that's very recent and it just lead me led me to wonder like is that supposed to be a clue versus the other names 
but or am I just misreading? Maybe it's a translation thing because I I just think like they could have called him soldier, right? How long have soldiers been around for all of human history, basically, or you know at least for many thousands of years? Just to call him colonel right. really stood out to me because everyone else has these jobs that are just kind of like you could have been doing this anytime, you know, who knows where and when this is it, it, that those things just add to that mystery of the where and when that that narrative refuses to answer and probably on purpose is not answering. And so I don't, the name of Colonel, it just stood out to me as sort of odd, like out of place. I don't know if you felt that way. I think too, then librarian would be the same, right? Cause libraries weren't around. Eh, I, I guess like... I, I'm reading that as like record keeper. I guess they could have called her the record keeper in that regard. I mean, people mm. have been as, as long yeah. as things have been printed, I, I guess library, like library of Alexandria, how long ago was that? I mean, people have been ho- holding right. knowledge and trying to organize it for, for quite a while. Certainly many thousands of years longer than people have been called a colonel, which I think is like, an invention maybe of the French military or something, maybe like two or 300 years ago, probably less. Like that's, mm-hmm. I guess that's the only thing to me that has placed that narrative in a time frame in my mind. Whereas everything else about that one just feels devoid of, of circumstance and historical context. Uh, anyway, again, that could be a total translation thing or I'm over reading it, <laughs> but it, I, it couldn't help but jump out to me. That's interesting. I had not noticed that at all, but I think it's interesting too that like the colonel is a higher up, right, within the military, yeah, yeah. but he's still taking orders from a gatekeeper. Right. Yeah, I have to believe that the this would be a good one for a prediction. It's not my prediction, but by the end of it, the, the gatekeeper has to, at some point, he's going to have to talk to the character and explain a bunch about what's been going on. I, or at least that yeah. I get that feeling that it's kind of, he's withholding for a long time. He's building up to be a character that at the end of a story just kind of doesn't explain things away like a Dumbledore does, but just sort of helps them understand finally the grand picture of something, you know, and just has to, mm-hmm. he, he's building that up or the, the narrative rather is building that up. So, okay. Well, if there's no other characters to talk about, why don't you set up the final segment and give us your prediction? What are we doing here? What's the last thing? Sure. It's uh the final segment. Segment number four is one big, bold prediction. So we're just going to use some of the evidence and uh, some of the pieces of information that we've gathered in the first half of the novel to make a prediction about what's going to happen in the second yeah. half. Um, yeah. So do you want to start? Cause oh, okay. I, mine is kind of based on yours. Oh, fantastic. Bit. I'd be happy to. And mine yeah. is not, um, I'm not going big brain here. I'm going with kind of, I think what the obvious reading <laughs> is for now. And my prediction is that the end of the world narrative is inside of the main character's head. I mean, the the fact that that's what they call the location and we know now that that's his shuffling password and add to that the mystery of shuffling itself that he says, I believe the quote is something, maybe I'll go pull it, but oh no, I have it here from 113. When he is shuffling, when he is performing that act of coding to kind of hide information in his brain, he says, thus was my conscious mind completely restructured. First, there was the overall chaos of my conscious mind. Then inside that, a distinct plumb pit of condensed chaos at the center or as the center. And they refused to reveal any more than this. They being the Institute or is it the system, the system, the system. The system, when they taught him this and when they trained him how to do into how to do this, there's a big part of it that they just wouldn't explain how it's done or, or how the brain processes that. So I have to assume that given the connections thematically, like I mentioned, there's the skull stuff going on with the scientists and then there's the dream reader with the skulls and there's enough direct connection and maybe sub- symbolic and thematic ones too at this point for me to think – those that's going to be what's happening that is my prediction that that is inside of his mind maybe he is the character uh in the at the end of the world the dream reader he could be all the characters that wouldn't even shock me if it was just kind of like we're all made up in your mind we are the town that like when he shuffles the town comes together to like maybe that's what the winter is when he's shuffling or something like that i could see it it doesn't even have to be that specific that's like oddly specific as a prediction but i just think between the the mystery of shuffling that there's starting to be the references in the naming and i think i mean now that we know at the halfway point he's the only calcutech left according to the granddaughter that also raises questions of he's obviously quite significant then he he is a sort of a special one i have to think the end of the world narrative is about him right it would that would yeah. be a shock to me if we got to the end it was like oh no the end of the world narrative was something else it was like eh, yeah. an origin of someone else or it was related to some other conflict or you know something uh, like the inklings <laughs> it's gonna yeah, be the, inkl- yeah. the inklings are doing no I, um <laughs> 
again, all due respect to the Inklings, I'm going to def- <laughs> I'm until I encounter them myself, I'm going to defend the Inklings blindly, just for no other reason <laughs> other than that their title is weirdly capitalized in the story, which I kind of like. <laughs> yeah. I sort yeah. of like the way that's printed. Anyway, so that is my big bold prediction. I have no clue. I think I guess I know I said this was unpleasant so far, but I think it's to the narrative's credit that I I don't even feel super confident in that guess. I think I'm using pretty obvious clues. And so, yeah, that's where I'm at with it, Amanda. Give us your big, bold prediction. So I agree. I think that uh, the end of the world narrative is the subconscious of um, the narrators uh, of, right on. of Wonderland. So I think it's the subconscious. And... Um, yeah, I think that that's what we're going to find out at the end there. And I also think that it's not happening at the same time as the events in Wonderland. I think that okay. there's going to be a difference in timing because specifically he mentions um, in one of the first two chapters of the end of the world. I think in the first chapter of the end of the world chapter, mm-hmm. it's yeah. um, there's a clock that doesn't work. So the time yeah, the there t- and is it's- very different. Yeah, and, and isn't it the centerpiece of the town? It's the big structure. It's like when yeah. he's over mountains or hills, you know, it's like the one thing he can always see. Yeah, and the only way yeah. you can see the clock face is if you're, like, far away from it, and then you can tell that it's not working. Um, right. So that made me think that maybe there's going to be, like, a, a time difference. And I also thought, too, that uh, the non-semiotech duo, Junior and Big Boy, the guys who destroy oh, the narrator's yeah. apartment— um, they're remember they're the third party. They're not part of the system or semiotechs. Um, mm-hmm. So they mention that there's probably going to be some torture and semiotech involvement later. Um, that the narrator will probably be tortured later. And he did lie to them. Yes. And he knew. <laughs> I believe part of his internal narration at that point was sort of like. I've taken my chance, like they will catch up to me on this. And when they do, you know, either I'll, either I'll be safe and inculcated from, you know, switching sides or whatever, or I'm going to, you know, be killed. Right. So I think that the, the mention of like, possibly he's going to be tortured later and they're going to want his information, right? That's what they're after. The semiotechs want the information from the professor and he's already shuffled the data. So what the, what I was saying and this is probably super specific but um i think that maybe the shadow that's trying to get a map of the end of the world to escape with the narrator maybe that's like symbolic of like mind infiltration so that could be them like especially if we think of it as not happening at the same time that the right, shadow okay. is like getting trying to gain information so that they can get that information okay yeah in the they're like world. coaxing his mind into unshuffling yeah. or something that's right. why yeah and it's the shadow right that wants him to make the map yeah that's the exactly. okay that's the force that is encouraging that that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense if if the shadow is sort of i don't know if it's if that whole if the whole town's operation is when his mind is shuffling then the shadow could be maybe the clearest link to his back to his conscious, you know, Tokyo mind. Then it's like the thing that they're getting. That's like how they penetrate his unconscious happenings is with that. The shadow yeah. is like the remnant of that. Yeah. I, yeah. That makes a lot of sense too. I mean, it makes sense in so far as this narrative would make it make sense. I don't know if yeah. anything I just said to an outside person who hasn't read this book would make any sense. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, what are I, you I don't talking know. about? <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know if anything I just said psychologically makes any sense. I could have just misused <laughs> all of those words, probably all of those words, but within the story and the way it's kind of glossing over some of that stuff, that would, yeah, that would make sense to me. That would be pretty coherent. Excellent. Yeah, your final note here about paper clips just gave me a thought. Uh Maybe the other part one book club segment we should do would be kind of like, what are the best motifs so far? Like, what are the motifs to note? Because I think paper clips have come up enough for it to be not a not thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's in there, right? (laughs) And so my other prediction was that um, because paper clips are are like a huge thing that he notices that the narrator notices everywhere. I yeah, think that that's yeah. going to be something that either leads to a, some kind of ending or that it is a way for like, it's a tool to end the story in some way. Right. Okay. Yeah. There could be some unlocking mechanism with the paperclip. Yeah. Also a symbol that is, 
I mean, it's like paperclips are odd because they're a symbol of organization or fu- functionally organizational tool, but they're very, they're also very windy, you know? So I could see somebody reading a paperclip as kind of like the metal's all bent around, you know, you can like, you can bend them up and make them all crazy shaped and everything. So as a motif, I think it could be, and it wraps around itself. That's another mm-hmm. thing. Maybe this, maybe this narrative is doing that too, or the two narratives are kind of circling each other in that way. Lots to be revealed. I will say, I feel that's a, as generic a statement as I could have ever said, but yes, there, because of, because of the lack of connection, I feel like the back half of this book has a lot of heavy lifting to do. And my, I think my overall impressions of the book I feel like it has so much to do that I, I almost can't even give an impression right now. I've been enjoying it for sure. It reminds yeah. me of some of his other things I've read. Because of the the dual narrative nature and the mystery, this is just going to be a book that if it ends well, then I think it will be quite good. And if it doesn't, then I might, you know, be, <laughs> come away with a different reaction. So any, <laughs> any other final thoughts on the first half? This was, again, your pick. So any, I don't know, any other reactions or Murakami thoughts you haven't been able to say? I'm I'm really enjoying it so far, and if the other if the other novels that he's written, which he's written quite a few, are yeah, yeah. like this, then I think that I will definitely read another Murakami novel. It's I've really enjoyed mm-hmm. it so far. And he he has a couple, maybe his more recent ones that I can think of. He has a couple that are in no way fantastical. So you know, and if you want to see what he does with a realistic fiction novel or story, those are out there too. Not everything he does is so surreal, otherworldly, dual worlds. But I think his most famous books and the people who really hold his stuff up very highly and praise it, I think they tend to prefer the, the oddities, the surreal mm-hmm. stuff, and the, the science fiction, one could say. But there are other novels out there, too. I feel like the colorless Suzuki character one, and then there's After Dark or After Midnight, I forget the tale or the title of that novel, those are both just completely grounded in the real world, as far as my memory goes. So there's mm-hmm. other things out there. Excellent. Well, a couple couple notes before we close out. This was obviously part one of the book club on this novel. Part two will be out next Friday. Just as a reminder, we're doing book clubs every Friday. That is when those episodes drop, so check us out on Fridays. And the next one, part two for this book, will come out on the 12th, so that's February 12th. We'll release that. And I think we are also ready at this point to announce, if you've made it this far, you're probably curious anyway, to announce our next book, which I think we did in the rec, but we'll announce it again here. Uh, We're going to be covering a Stephen King collection of novellas called Different Seasons, which you can find at all major retailers and, as always, try and support local bookstores. That's King, I feel like is an easy person to get a copy of his work for the most part. I I don't know about this one. Yeah, it's one of the more best-selling authors to to be alive i think and so yeah we'll be doing some of those novellas to be clear and i'll post this on social media too when we promote it we are not reading all four because that book all four of them together it's over 500 pages and i think we're setting for our book club a pretty hard cutoff around that amount so i think we're just going to cover two of them maybe three of the four but i think we're going to just settle for two and then leave it up to the you know the listeners if they want to read more stephen king it'll be there and so that's coming up soon. Um, again, look out for part two of the Murakami on the 12th. And as always, we'll see you between the pages. 